reading of the scripture this morning is the first portion of Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, we'll read the first 14 verses, but if you open your Bible to that chapter, you'll notice that it's 63 verses long, and it's all one subject. It's the prophet's inspired exposure of the sin and sinfulness of Israel. We're going to read the first part of the chapter that explains the sinful origin of the church. This is God's Word, Ezekiel 16, beginning at verse 1. If you look at verse 2, that's the theme, cause Jerusalem to know her abomination. This is God's word. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day when thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast into the open field, to the loathing of thy person in the day when thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, Live, yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger's skin. And I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thine hands, and a chain on thy neck, and I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen, and silk, and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour, and honey, and oil. And thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. You note, now that's the end of the reading at verse 15, how the prophet then says, you played the harlot. And all the way through the chapter, all the way through verse 63, is an exposition of the sinfulness 
of the church even after God had taken her to himself. But that's the end of the reading. It's on the basis of that passage and others like it that we have Lord's Day 21 before us this morning. And just question and answer 54. Question and answer 54 of Lord's Day 21. In the back of the Psalter on page 12, you recall we're marching through the Apostles' Creed and we're up to the confession we believe in Holy Catholic Church. Question 54, what believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to Himself by His Spirit and Word out of the whole human race a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Now, please turn with me to the Belgic Confession. That's the next creed in the Psalter after the Compendium, which is a summary of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Belgic Confession begins on page 37. I want to read with you for the introduction to the sermon this morning three articles of the Belgic Confession, 27, 28, and 29. A very unusual way to introduce the sermon. But I want to show you that this Belgic Confession, which was written two years before the Heidelberg Catechism, 1561, Heidelberg Catechism 1563, goes at length to explain the doctrine of the church. Here in the Catechism, we only have that one short question and answer, 54. Let's look at the Belgic Confession a moment, so you young people ought to be following along too. In the back of the Psalter, Article 27, the Catholic Christian Church. This is our confession. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by His blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Ghost. Now let me pause already here. We make a confession in the, Apost in the Heidelberg Catechism that I am a member of the church. Now, Ask yourself if this is a description of your congregation and your denomination, and if these articles describe you as a member of them. Second paragraph, this church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal king, which without subjects he cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world, though she sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing. As during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place, Standale, West Michigan, United States, or to certain persons, white, 
Dutch descent, Protestant Reformed people, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world, and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same spirit. Now, Article 28, everyone is bound to join himself to the true church. We believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved and that out of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw himself to live in a separate state from it, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and, and this will be what the next question and answer of the Lord's Day is, and as mutual members of the same body serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents God has given them. And that this may be the more effectually observed, it is the duty of all believers according to the word of God to separate themselves from all those who do not belong to the church and join themselves to this congregation wheresoever God hath established it. And now you can hear history. The Reformed had just come out of the Roman Catholic Church. Some were remaining in the Roman Catholic Church. The Confession has us say that we must separate ourselves from that church and join to this congregation wheresoever God hath established it, even though the magistrates and edicts of princes were against it, yea, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment. Therefore, all those who separate themselves from the same or do not join themselves to it act contrary um, to the ordinance of God. Then Article 29, how do we find this true church? The marks of the true church and wherein she differs from the false. In this long article, listen for three things. Number one, the marks of the true church. Number two, the marks of true Christians. And then the marks of the false church. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the Word of God, which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves the church. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. Hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. Now the second subject. With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith. And when they have received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin. 
They follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in Him. Now the third subject, as for the false church, she ascribes more power and authority to herself and her ordinances than to the Word of God and will not submit herself to the yoke of Christ. Neither does she administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in His Word, but adds to and takes from them as she thinks proper. She relies more upon men than upon Christ and persecutes those who live holily according to the Word of God and rebuke her for her errors, covetousness, and idolatry. These two churches are easily known and distinguished from each other. I think that's an example of why you want lively preaching and not reading of the Word. It's not easy to listen to just reading, but that's the introduction for the sermon this morning. I want to call your attention to this Lord's Day and to the theme, the Holy Church of Christ. The Church of Christ is gathered, the Church of Christ is elect, and the Church of Christ is assured. That is, what we are is the gathering of God's people. Those who are gathered truly and spiritually are the elect, and every one of the elect may be sure of their election and membership in the church. Those are the three subjects of the sermon this morning. Can you imagine life apart from the church? Think about that for a moment. If you were not a member of the church of Christ, what would your life be? You who have been members of the church of Christ all your life can hardly imagine that. But try to imagine that for a moment. What would you have done this morning when you got up? Where would you have gone? With whom would you have gathered? We've gathered here. Others are gathering elsewhere. With whom and where would you gather? What would you do all day? What would you think about when you go to bed at night? What would you contemplate when you get up in the morning? What would your goals and motivations be? A world of difference between those who are members of the church and those who are not. We are the gathered people of God. It's a marvelous thing when you think about it. God gathered you and you and you and every one of you who are believers and me from the world, from out of the world, and brought us into this assembly, this congregation. I use those two words deliberately. Remind you what we had for the call to worship this morning. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Those are two good words to describe who we are. We're an assembly and we are a congregation. And if you look those words up in a dictionary, you see that they mean something far more significant than the word church itself means in the English language in any case. An assembly is a gathering of those 
who are in one place. A congregation is a collection of those who are gathered together in one place. Scholars don't know where the word church, the English word church, came from, but in its origins, it probably doesn't have anything to do with an assembly. And yet the words in the Bible that describe who we are emphasize that. There are two Old Testament words for church. One means the gathering of the called ones, and the other one means the assembled ones. And I'm making a point of this. Well, the New Testament word is ecclesia. You recognize in that word the word ecclesiastical, which means having to do with the church. And all of those words, New Testament also, emphasize that we're the gathering together in one place for a certain purpose of the people of God. Now, that's important because the Bible usually gives names, not always, but often, to things or people, and God gives names to Himself for us to understand the essence of those things or people or Himself. If you want to know about God, who He is, what's His essence like, look at His names. Often God named people in the Old Testament after their character, and God gave the church a name to identify its essence. That's the point. We are, in our essence, the gathered ones, the ones who are called out and brought in, out of the world and brought into this assembly. So the word congregation is a good word for us. We might call ourselves the Protestant Reformed Congregation of Grace. But then think of the other words that describe church assemblies, broader assemblies, narrower assemblies. The word consistory is a gathering together of the office bearers. Look that word up in an English dictionary and find what its origin is. Or think of the word classis. It also is a word that describes a gathering together of churches in a certain region. And the same is true for synod. And all of these words, even in the English language, describe a very important part of who we are. We're the gathered people of God. Now think about the applications of that for a moment this morning. If our identity is that we are the gathered ones, our activity ought to match our identity. What we do ought to fit with who we are. Now that's a truism. Everyone would say, well, that makes sense. And yet we need to be reminded of that because according to our sinful nature, it's often our tendency not to act as who we are, not to assemble together, not to gather, not to congregate, but to isolate and separate. And so we need to be very, uh, very at great pains to see that it's a beautiful thing when we act who we are. It's a beautiful thing to see a horse to run. And if a horse can't run because it's got a broken leg, usually the thinking is the humane thing is just to shoot the poor horse because it can't do what it was made to do. It's a beautiful thing to see the birds to soar in the air 
and a fish to swim in the sea. Perhaps you've been in a boat and the dolphins are jumping in the waves next to you. It's a marvelous thing that the creatures do what they're designed to do. And it's a beautiful thing to see the church be the gathering who God made us to be. That's why it's so painful when some people are not able to gather together. Some of the old saints in nursing homes need you because they can't do what you here are able to do. Now, we're thankful for modern technology. They're able to participate in that remote way, and yet it's not the same as being here. So we pray for them. You ought to visit them so that in that small way they can have a little taste of the communion which the church enjoys on Sunday morning. The fact that we ought to congregate points out the pain of those who can't. It also points out the sin of those who won't. And that needs to be emphasized among us too because we must not adopt ever the thinking that is so common in the world today that we are Christians and that we are part of the body of Christ but we don't need to gather together with any group that calls itself church. In Hebrews 10 you understand and every elder knows that passage we ought not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And then The apostle goes on to warn in Hebrews 10 of the consequences of failing to assemble together as the manner of some is. That's why the elders visit you if you miss for a week or two or a number of services scattered through the month. Not because they must punish you, but because they're concerned for you. Partly because you are missing the food that you need to receive In the gathering, you may say, but I get that food by listening to sermons. Their response to that is, but you must be who you are and act according to your identity. We are the gathered ones. We are the assembly of the saints. So don't be surprised if the elders visit you, if you miss. Come and be who you ought to be. So that's first. We are the gathered ones. Second, we need to be gathered. And we need to be gathered because naturally we're not a part of this assembly at all. Naturally we're lost. Naturally we're scattered. Naturally we're separated. We're not naturally united to the head. We're not naturally holy. We don't naturally agree with Christ. And all of those are expressions from the creeds. Naturally We are lost. That's what comes out in Ezekiel 16. If you think back as to what we read this morning, the the prophet was going to get at, after verse 14 where we stopped, their current abominations. But he began with their original abominations and describe the church as the church is naturally. Your father, can you imagine how offensive this was to the Jews who claimed Abraham as their father and Isaac and Jacob? To have the prophet say your father was a Hittite and your mother was an Amorite and your birthplace was not 
among God's people. Think about that. Your nativity, when you were born, you were filthy. You were polluted in your blood. Your navel was not cut. You were not salted. That was one of the ways that they cleaned the young babies. No one pitied you, have any compassion upon you. You were cast out into the open field to the loathing of your person in the day when you were born. I saw you. I passed by you. I saw you filthy in your blood. That's who you are naturally. And then I came and I gathered you to myself. I drew you to myself. I cleansed you and clothed you and beautified you. But you need to know your origins. You need to be gathered. We need to be reminded of that, people of God, because most of us were born and raised in the church, baptized by believing parents, and we never knew anything other than the fact that we were members of this church or another Christian church. And we mustn't say covenant, covenant, except that we understand covenant is that God usually works in the line of generations to save His people, but you still needed to be saved. Even though you were born of believing parents, your birth was described in Ezekiel 16. You were filthy when you were born. When you were born, your parents didn't give you anything good, and God had to call you out of that natural condition and put you in the church. And the sign of that was baptism applied to you even as an infant to show that your natural condition is filthy, polluted, corrupt, and you need the saving work of God for you even in your earliest days. That's second. Third, it's the Son of God that gathers us. We're the gathered assembly. We need to be gathered. Now third, it's the Son of God who does that gathering. You don't gather yourself. The minister doesn't gather you. The parents don't gather you. Or the Christian schools don't. The Son of God does. Sometimes we imagine that the tools that God uses, parents, teachers, ministers, and others, are the ones who actually gather. But we can't gather our children. We couldn't do that at all. It takes the Son of God to do that. And that's why the Catechism refers to Jesus that way here. I mustn't make too much of a point, a point of this, but I imagine that the church fathers wrote what they did in the 54th answer for that reason. It doesn't say because the Lord Jesus Christ gathers, defends, and preserves His church, it says, the Son of God does because it took nothing less than God Himself to gather divine power. Comparable to creation. You couldn't create the world. You can't create Christians. I can't bring into existence out of nothing the beautiful world that we live in, and I can't create out of nothing a spiritual life for my children or for you. The Son of God must do that. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10 says, We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And that's why the prophet in Ezekiel 16 has God saying, I said to you, live. When you were in your blood, I passed by you, saw you in your filth, and I said, live. And no one could speak, live, and make someone live except it's God Himself. 
It's a marvelous thing. The Son of God gathers. Now, let me make a couple of applications to that point for a moment, too. We need to know, on the one hand, our natural conditions so that we're humbled. No one ought ever be proud that they're a member of the church because of something in them. I must not be, you must not be. We need to be humbled every time we read the Scripture. I was gathered from my natural condition, filthy, in my blood, where no one pitied me. God said to me, live. Humbled. But we also ought to recognize that we are the handiwork of God. And now, not only individually, but collectively, this gathering is a marvelous handy work, creative work of God Himself. And that ought to give us joy and some esteem of ourselves. We're His workmanship. There's something to be joyful about in that. And then the application is also, let's be very careful how we live in this creation of God and how we conduct ourselves and how we treat this creation of God. Be very, very careful with the church, the assembly. I think all of us have been aware more in the last generation or two of being careful how we live out there in that creative work of God so that we don't pollute. We're careful how we use the resources God gave us from the creation. I think Christians understood that far before any of the non-Christians ecologists today But be that as it may, we're aware of the need to be careful how we treat that creation of God. Now, from a certain point of view, that's only the scaffolding for the important work of God, this creation, the church. This is the crowning achievement of God. This is His special work, His bride of His Son, the church of the Lord Jesus. You are members, individual members of this body. Be careful how you treat this church. Now the creation isn't merely a scaffolding. The creation is going to carry on into the next age, eternity. So that illustration falls away, but you do know the truth of the reality that the church of Jesus Christ is his crowning achievement. Be careful that you don't let the lie come in here. Be careful that you don't allow disobedience to come in here from you or from anyone else. And be careful that you are not responsible for the rending of this body which is the church of the Lord Jesus. Be careful that you are not responsible for driving away young people, by your conduct, by your actions or by your inaction. And I must be careful with the greatest care how I live as a leader in the churches. It's God's precious work. So we're the gathering of God in the world. We must be gathered because we're naturally not. Third, it's Christ that gathers. And now fourth, We need to see that He gathers by His Spirit and His Word. Look at the Catechism again. He gathers to Himself by His Spirit and Word. You understand there that the Word is the Scripture. 
And that that word is especially the scripture preached. But that that scripture preached has no power unless the spirit moves that word and puts it in the hearts of the people to gather them in. So, a very important expression, spirit and word. The preaching is the tool that God uses to gather his people. Why? Because the preaching is my persuasive power? Because the preaching is my gift to enable you to come here or to stay here? No. Because instead, when I preach faithfully, you don't hear gritters, you hear Jesus Christ speak to you. As I open up the word and explain, Jesus himself speaks. Otherwise, no one would would be gathered. Or if they were gathered, it wouldn't be the assembly of Jesus Christ. It would be the assembly of this man or that man. And how many churches today aren't to be described that way? Jesus speaks. Remember in John 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and other sheep I had, they'll hear my voice too. He was talking about you and me. My sheep always hear my voice. And because Jesus left in his body and went to heaven and sits there until he returns. The way we hear his voice now is through the instrumentality, especially, but not only, of preachers of God's word. So, let's make application of that for a few moments. It's our duty not to be passive, but to be very active in this matter of the gathering of the church. We mustn't sit down, as it were, and say, well, God is the one who gathers the church. I'll watch Him do it. And it would be wrong of us, we might be tempted to say, to take an active part in the gathering of the church because God does it, and we don't. In fact, the opposite is true. I and you must be very, very active in the gathering. God uses instruments. He uses instruments that start here behind the pulpit, sit there in the elders and deacons bench, sit over there in the Christian school classroom, and actually he uses all of you in this great work of gathering and defending and preserving his church. Christ speaks through each of you. So this Lord's Day is in the first place the call to seminary. Some of you visited Seminary Friday with about 95 or so of your classmates in the junior class, and that's a very happy thing for us to see you come. Your church history student, uh, teachers bring you students, and you learn about what goes on in the seminary. Now, young men, those of you who came and those of you who didn't, we need ministers. Because God is pleased to gather by His Spirit and Word through men who stand behind the pulpit and preach. And we have too many men who are my age, getting close to retirement age, who are going to stop being full-time pastors. And we don't have enough students in the seminary. We have one in each class. We have three men ready to retire very soon. Their consistories are urging them to hang on for a little while. We have four vacant churches right now. Three men ready to retire. That's seven. And we have four seminary students. That's all. We don't know whether they're going to make it. We're going to have more vacant churches. You know what it means to be vacant. 
but you don't know what it means to be vacant in a church that's apart from the congregation of West Michigan churches. Pray, parents, pray, members, that some of our young men will sense the calling to be ministers or missionaries. This is a call, this Lord's Day is a call to mission work and evangelism because God gathers from within, often, our children, by the witness of the parents and the preaching of the gospel, but God gathers from without by the witness of the congregation outside of the congregation. This Lord's Day, I say again, is a call to evangelism and personal witness. And this Lord's Day is a call to every believer to speak the Word of God for the gathering and the defending and the preserving of the church. That's a big subject all by itself. I want to be brief here, but I want to call your attention to a number of passages that point that out. Acts 8, in the first place, has all of the people of God spread over all of the world because of persecution. And those people of God went everywhere preaching the word. Now, they weren't all preachers, but they went everywhere evangelizing, witnessing, testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the manner in which God was pleased to gather the early New Testament church. In James chapter 5, the apostle says, that if any of you err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. He's not talking there about ministers or elders. He's talking about every member of the congregation. If someone errs from the truth and someone else converts him, that someone else has saved, that's the language of the scripture, that soul from perishing and death. We all have a very important active part in this work of gathering and defending and preserving the church. And James 5 really is explained further in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we all immediately recognize as the passage that calls you and you, all of you, when you see an erring brother, to go to him and speak to him, to call him to repentance. Matthew 18 isn't followed very often. And usually our response is one of two wrong responses. Either we say nothing or we speak to the wrong people. We see something going on in the congregation and we simply become silent and maybe sullen and bitter. That's wrong. Or we don't remain silent, but instead of talking to the sinner, we talk to other people about the sinner, and that's wrong too. And the point of all of that is that God uses His Word in the mouth of His people, not only the office bearers, it starts with them, but God uses His words in the mouth of His people for the defense and the gathering and the preservation of His church. You must speak. No one would deny that parents are a mighty instrument in the hand of God when the children are little and don't understand a word in a sermon. God uses mom reading the little Bible stories to the young sons and daughters 
to be a means of grace and maybe bring them to faith with that word out of the, health, out of the mouth of mom. And when mom folds those little hands to pray and teaches those little ones to pray, no one would deny that that's a means of grace, powerful means of grace for the saving of those children. That's not to deny that this is the main means of grace behind the pulpit, but it is to emphasize the importance of every member being an instrument of God, His Word and Spirit for the gathering and the defending and the preserving of the church. This Lord's Day, I remind you, is a call to the seminary, This Lord's Day is a call to missions, and this Lord's Day is a call to every one of you to read the Word, have it in your heart, speak it with your mouth to others to be a blessing for the gathering and the defending of the church. The church is going to be gathered because the church is God's elect and what God determines to do in His counsel of election will be done. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because the catechism doesn't spend a lot of time here. But election is the foundation of the church. Election, the doctrine of election. Chosen, the catechism says, to eternal life. We could say elected to eternal life. Why, you say, is the catechism so brief here about that fundamental doctrine? Well, because the catechism is speaking about the Christian faith from the viewpoint of our experience, mainly. And partly, perhaps, because the catechism did not see that that doctrine was controverted yet at the time it was written. No one denied election. A couple of generations later it would be denied by the Arminians and then the canons of Dort needed to be written so that this little seed, doctrine of election here, is blossomed out into the five points of the canons. And that's the relationship between the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession, both in the 1560s, And the canons of Dort in 1618, 1619, what everyone agreed with in 1563 and 1561 began to be controverted in the 1610s. And so by 1618, that doctrine of election needed to be explained and defended further in that beautiful canons of Dort. Well, election is the subject here. Election. Where does the church come from? Why was the church gathered? What explains who is gathered and who's not? Answer is election and reprobation. From eternity, God determined a specific number of people to be members of His church. And not to be a motley gathering of unrelated people, but to be a beautiful, harmonious whole. You in your place and you in yours. All of us with our own place. Each one fitting perfectly in that body called the church. According to God's decree of election. And why did God choose you? Remember, look at you in the dirt. Look at you in your blood. Look at you when no one pitied you. Look at you when you were not desirable, 
or beautiful at all. And then say, God chose me because he wanted to choose me. And whatever beauty we have individually and whatever beauty we have as a congregation, we have because God gave it to us. But there was nothing in us that was beautiful that attracted us to him. That's the teaching of unconditional election. Read all of Ezekiel 16, and you'll see that not only originally there was nothing beautiful in you that made God choose you, but you'll see that repeatedly we become ugly and make ourselves worthy of everlasting ruin. And God continues to be merciful to us. Election is not based on anything in me. And then be humbled more by this reality. That you are part of the fallen human race and God chose you out of it. And God determined not to choose others and left them in their sin and misery for everlasting ruin and destruction. You belong there naturally, and I do. In the great book about the gathering of the New Testament church, the book of Acts, if when you're finished reading Ezekiel 16, you want something more to read, then you read Acts chapter 13. Acts, the book, remember, of the gathering of the early New Testament church. In that chapter, Paul is told by God, stay in Corinth. You don't see any fruit here yet, but stay here because I have much people in this city. I have the chosen ones here, and you need to keep preaching so that you find them, and I will draw them out of the world by your preaching and bring them into the church. And so later on in that same chapter, you read, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Who believed? The ones who exercised their own free will to believe? The ones who made their own decision without any work of God in them believed? No, those who were ordained to eternal life. They are the ones who believed. The church's foundation is in election. And that's why we know the church is going to be gathered. But here's the last important point. Are you a member of the church? Are you a living member of the church? And are you sure? And if you say yes, then this is the question for you. How are you sure that you are a living member? You understand that there are probably Members whose names are written in the church directory who are not true members of the church of Christ. That's a fearful thing to think about, but it's reality. The question is, are you? Now, I'm not intending to make you doubt. The Word of God does not want His people to doubt. The confession that we have before us in the Heidelberg Catechism is this, I am and forever shall remain a living member of the church of Christ. When you go home today, I want you to be able to say that. This is our Christian confession. I am, and if I am, I always will be a living member of the Lord Jesus Christ. Assured of your membership, you're assured of your election. 
and assured of your election, you may be sure of your preservation. Because whom God chooses, He preserves. And that's the point. Don't doubt. God doesn't want His people to doubt. It's not something that's praiseworthy to doubt. As though if you doubt, it's really a mark of a, a good, strong Christian. Well, I understand that some imagine that it's praiseworthy to doubt because there are way too many who don't even think about it. And just because their name is written in the church directory, they assume that they're members of the church of Christ. And that's wrong to assume that. But it's also wrong to doubt. God wills His people to be sure. How can you be sure? Did you hear this morning the voice of Christ? Did you hear Jesus, not just the minister who's preaching, but over the course of your lifetime when you've listened to sermons, did you hear, not the man, but did you hear Jesus? And when you heard him speak, did you love to hear his voice? Did you hear him identify you as you are naturally, filthy, corrupt, unworthy? Did you identify yourself with that identification and description of God's people naturally? Did you feel His voice draw you powerfully to come to Him? Did you give up all your defense of yourself and all of your justification of yourself and commit yourself to Him? Did you hear Him? Do you see Him? Do you know that He pitied you and declares forgiveness to you You go home at night and you put your head on the pillow and you pray, forgive me. You mean that? The marks of Christians. Reread Article 29 of the Belgian Confession. The marks of Christians are, first of all, faith. Faith. Do you trust Jesus? That's the question. Do you depend on Him and not on yourself? That's the question. And do you see that He gave you life, a life that you now live in the service of the church, and for the benefit of the other members. And when you don't, you're sorry for that, aren't you? And you want to do better, don't you? That's a mark of a Christian. That's a mark of a true member of the church of Christ. Now, when we say amen at the very end and you exit, be who you are the gathering, not just for this hour and a half in the sanctuary, but be every day of the week, the gathered people of God who love the fellowship of the saints. And then next week, God willing, we'll see the doctrine of the communion of the saints and how that works out as we live together. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy word. Make it powerful today, not because a man spoke it, but because it's the explanation and application of thy word. Speak, Father, thy servants hear. Create in us what is not there naturally, a right spirit and a clean heart, and empower us by thy grace and Holy Spirit, through thy word, 
to be the kind of people that live according to their identity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.